how do you go from growing up in Indiana, then move on to Stanford University when you're 19 years old, uh, Harvard Medical School, you become the youngest health commissioner in the state of Indiana and its first African-American health commissioner to one day running for governor of Indiana. One of our guests today is Dr. Woody Myers, and that is kind of the highlight of his uh, story thus far. He's just announced last July his candidacy for the governor of Indiana, and we learn what makes him tick, along with his amazing wife and partner, Stacy. Yes, uh, Stacy Myers, who is a business owner and also a healthcare, former healthcare professional. Um, it was an interesting conversation to hear both of them being able to juggle their very high competitive nature and skill set to working harmoniously together as a married couple. I almost felt like we were in like marriage counseling, watching right, them right, work together. Them work together. <laughs> um, but th it's been absolutely wonderful hearing from Stacy about how she's taking her business from not just a traditional brick and mortar, but starting it as a digital company. And I think as we're thinking about how E economies and um, commerce work nowadays, that's becoming more the norm and more of the trend and how technology is playing a big part in allowing people to start their own businesses. Yeah, and she's also selling a product that is very, very new, newly available to the world, CBD. Mm -hmm. And that that's the other piece, right? Like, you're, in a, you're at the forefront of innovation. You're still trying to figure it out as well as the rest of the, the world as well, too, on how to consume it. So mm -hmm. it was a very interesting conversation on hearing from Stacy on what it takes uh, to build a business. And then also... And we get some insider tips on building a business, like yes. the things that she wishes that she would have known prior to starting this business and yes. running it. Yes. And then with Woody, with his exceptional background, his he just draws a lot from both national and international his experience. And I think that's an awesome thing to hear and an awesome thing that he is going to be bringing to the state of Indiana. Yeah, it was uh, fascinating to hear how these two incredible people who happen to be married to each other, they happen to find each other, but both of them have a long history of standing up for people who needed some support, uh, going to the, the defense of people who were deemed as different or uh, damaging and how consistently they have stood up for those people. And it's really about learning about how education is, has just been like that thread that runs through even with Stacy as she's building her business and having to educate her consumers and then also um, when she was um, in respiratory therapy as well too, how she was not just the person giving or the provider giving care it was she was also educating her patients as well and the same thing for Woody I think his his whole career has been in educating and destigmatizing some things that were pretty heavy stuff um, there's a great story that you'll hear um, about how he's he was at the forefront of the Ryan White story and how he took he that changed step. and educated the perception right. of, that people had especially back in the late 80s early 90s of the AIDS epidemic right and it, and it really shaped how 
we as a nation have wrapped our arms around diseases and terminal illnesses, um, not just around HIV, but all these other. Um, right, removing the stigma. Removing the stigma, the stigma right. So it, it's great, and I think it's also wonderful to hear how he, as a leader, talks about what it takes to take that stance, even in the face of all these other competing and other noise on how to do the right thing. Right. If you ever have felt like, oh, I don't know how I could be any busier in my life. I have so many things going on. Well, that you haven't met the Myers because there's so many <laughs> things going on in their lives that they're excelling at. And it was an incredible conversation. We can't wait for you to hear just the first part of it. So we invite you to take a moment and listen. Thank you so much for joining us, Stacy and Dr. Myers. Uh, we absolutely enjoy having you here. I want to get started with just kind of learning more about you and both of your journeys um, here to Indiana and then to where you are currently. Dr. Myers, you grew up in Indiana. Yes, you've been a Hoosier all of your life. I have. Uh, can you get us a sense of what uh, growing up here was like? What was your home life like? I know your father was a landscaper, right? That's correct. And your mother was uh, an elementary school She started school as an elementary school teacher. She became, over, over time, an assistant principal and then a principal. And then she uh, began an administrative role with uh, the uh, IPS uh, downtown office uh, here in Indianapolis, uh, which was uh, during some very interesting times. I grew up in the... Uh, in the, the 60s and 70s uh, here in Indianapolis. And it was a time of tumult uh, with respect to a lot of different issues, uh, both nationally and locally. And uh, you guys are way too young to remember. But, Thank uh, you for that. There I were, appreciate that. There were some, uh, there were some uh, very serious issues regarding uh, race. Uh, even in those days, uh, we were very concerned about schools and, and the, the, uh, the issues of, uh, of integration and so on. And uh, there was a judge, federal judge, Hugh Dillon, that ordered the integration of Indianapolis Public Schools. My mom had the job of actually reporting directly to the judge, uh, bypassing the school superintendent and the school board to actually do the work to actually decide which kids went to which schools on which bus or didn't go. Uh, and in those days, it was before the iPhone, it was before there was private lines and We'd get calls at home because all your numbers were public uh, calls that would tell us, uh, wait, would you please make sure that my kid gets bus 2X and not to Y? And then another call would be make sure my kids doesn't get doesn't get bust at all. Uh, and there were a lot of angry parents and pleading parents. And it really uh, was a was a remarkably uh, cogent introduction to me as a kid. Uh, to the issues uh, sur surrounding uh, the uh, incredibly tough problem of, of racial uh, harmony uh, in our city. But I grew up here. I'm a third-generation Hoosier. Uh, I'm an IPS product, uh, graduated from Short Ridge High School, uh, and could not wait to get out of Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted out of here as a that kid. That didn't work out so well for you. Man, I tell you, I left here and I said, I'm never, I just uh, wanted to try something else. Uh, I was just so tired of the uh, the uh, the scene here, and I decided to get as far away as possible. So uh, 
and go to as good a school as I could get into. So I, uh, I got into this place called Stanford University. Never heard of it. Which, uh, well, yeah. in those days, nor, can't, nor can't did anyone else. Uh, <laughs> no, literally, uh, my guidance counselor said, Stanford, Connecticut? You know, it's like, no, 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 Stanford. 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 Yeah, yeah. In California. So, and you couldn't have gone further away from I, Indiana than California, you right? Know, the University of Hawaii didn't have what I thought was a great free med <laughs> program. So I said, okay, West Coast is far enough. And, uh, one of the best decisions that I, I ever made and frightening as well because it's the furthest I'd ever been from home. It's only the second time in my life I'd ever been on an airplane. Uh, but uh, it was one of those things that if you look back on now and say, wow, that, that changed my life in a very good way. Is, was there anything growing up when you did here, even as a child in elementary school, where you really saw that unrest Racially, absolutely. Um, remember, I'm a child of the '60s, so uh, in my uh, high school, uh, April 4th, 1968, was the day of the assassination of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, and it was uh, a day of the uh, days. Two or three days afterwards were days of uh, unrest across the nation. Indianapolis didn't have it as bad, but we we uh, I was at Short Ridge, and we didn't know what to do. I mean, we had never protested before, so. Uh, I remember it was uh, it was about uh, 10, 30, 11, and I was in my in my uh, government class. Roy Aberson was our government teacher, and uh, you could hear the kids running around the school outside. There were people that were making a lot of noise, and nobody knew what was happening, so we all decided just to get up and leave. It was interesting that Roy, who was kind of a left liberal, I won't call him a hippie, he had long hair, <laughs> but I won't call him a hippie. Anybody uh, that had hair back <laughs> that long right. hair back then was just considered a hippie. Uh, well, that as was as far as I know. But, uh, it seems until, like in movies until proven otherwise. Okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, he uh, he just said go, uh, and uh, we went outside and we uh, marched around the flag two or three times out in front of the uh, high, Short Ridge High School, and then we came back in. Because we didn't know what to do. We know, now there what was we do. No, now what do we that's do? right. There's no instruction on how, how do you protest? Uh, what do you do? You didn't have any classes for that. It wasn't uh, like there was right. 101 back then. Okay. No instruction book. No internet to go to. Right. You know, but uh, that was it. Was a very tough time. Uh, the, those things hit you, and then you just remember them for the rest of your life, and and they guide who you become. I have a lot more I want to ask about that. I feel like we could talk about that for about 16 hours, um, but I won't put you under that because I do want to talk to your amazing wife, Stacy. Stacy, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for having us. This is the us. first time we've ever had a couple on our show that yeah. we've uh, interviewed, and I'm so, so excited to do that. We're going to put you through all sorts of terrible uh, couple tests <laughs> and stuff like that. So uh, we apologize in advance for any, any sort of uh, arguments that may arise out of this. However... Uh, Stacy, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm not sure if you are a, a homegrown Hoosier or where have you where you came from. Tell I, us all. I am a homegrown Hoosier. I am originally from South Bend, Indiana. Uh, yay, Notre Dame. Um, born I was in about South to say yay, Mayor Pete. <laughs> <laughs> uh, born in South Bend. Uh, came to Indianapolis on my fourth birthday. My father um, was uh, transferred with the Boy Scouts of America. He was a a uh, career Boy Scout employee. He retired as a Boy Scout executive. My mother was uh, a lifetime, well, I shouldn't say lifetime, but um, the majority of her career was spent as a health professional, um, as a respiratory therapist. And um, we settled here in Indianapolis and um, have been here ever since. What sorts of things do you think you gleaned from your parents as far as career goes or work ethic goes? How did they shape you, either intentionally or not, 
um, by what you observed as a kid growing up? I have um, a very strong work ethic, and um, that I received that from both of my parents. And um, I followed suit from uh, my mother. I am also a respiratory therapist. And um, I took a turn last year and uh, entered into um, a, a different aspect. I entered into the legal cannabis space as a CBD distributor, a hemp CBD distributor. But I've always had a very strong work ethic, um, a very strong sense of family. My uh, father was a basketball coach, my softball coach. He was a scout leader for my brothers. Uh, my mom was Girl Scout leader for myself and my sister, and uh, I was that for my girls and volunteered with my son's scout troop and just always wanted to have that strong sense of family and involvement with my family and my children. That's awesome. How do you go from doing all the things that you've done especially in the medical field, to then getting passionate about CBD and what it can do for people. How did that come about in your life? And when we were like, you know what, this needs to be something that's more accessible to people because I see it really helps. And also becoming a small business owner as well. Right, too, right, right, right. Like just that's a very different Two very as big well. risks. Yeah. Right? And then the CBD business, and forgive me if I'm wrong because I'm certainly not uh, a genius at it, but it only became legal and approved for sale, right, in like 2018, is that correct? Actually, the the farm bill was um, originally, we fell under the 2014 farm bill, and then then there was the 2018 farm bill as well. So um, we fell under e-commerce initially, and we were legal in all 50 states. Uh, hemp was removed from the Schedule 1 in 28, under the 2018 farm bill. Okay. And what made you want to pursue opening your own business specifically with these products? I have my personal testimony. I had um, a chronic back condition, and I tried hemp CBD products uh, for that and received relief from my discomfort. And um, it just made a world of difference um, in, in both my discomfort and some other ailments that I had been suffering with and changed my life dr dramatically. Hmm. And you can plug your business right now, too. <laughs> so if anybody's out there who is struggling with, and keep me honest, back pain to intestinal inflammation, anxiety, there are so many things that CBD has been known to treat. If someone out there who's listening to this now is struggling with that sort of thing, where and how might we visit your business uh, to obtain relief? Um, you can visit my website, www.myershealth.com ventures.com and that's m-y-e-r-s-h-e-a-l-t-h ventures v-e-n-t-u-r-e-s dot com and not only are there lots of stories anecdotal evidence but there's also scientific evidence that's um, available online to see for yourself. Dr. Myers being a physician yourself uh, I think your career trajectory is fascinating to me um, someone who started out in the medical field and now is pursuing higher office, That's pursuing great. the governorship of Indiana. And we'll get to that. But I'd love to talk about maybe some of your early medical career. Uh, again, keep me honest. I think you were appointed as Indiana's youngest health commissioner. Mm -hmm. I was. Was it in 1984? Yeah. Well, I don't want to get out of the <laughs> <laughs> No, 1980s. 84-ish. 84-ish. 84-ish, right. 
I was, I was appointed by uh, then Governor uh, Robert Orr, who was uh, at that time the uh, oldest governor in America and a Republican. And I was working at that time for Senator Ted Kennedy, a well-known Democrat. Uh, I was working in Washington, D.C. as physician health advisor to the uh, Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee, uh, but had heard about this uh, job opening in my home state of Indiana. Now, remember when I was uh, 16, I wanted to get out of Indiana as you quickly wanted to get as, as far I could. Away as possible, didn't and want to come back. And I grew up, and I got a little bit more mature, and I had started, get, you know, I had kids, and I just, <laughs> a little oh, you know, a little, you know, a little get back, you know. Yeah. And so I had this uh, great idea. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do the interview for this job uh, that they had asked me what I come home and interview for, and I get to go see my dad for free. They're going to pay for the plane fare. And I get to, it was around Christmas time too. So I could come home and see dad for free. And then all I could do is go do this interview. So you just thought of it as like a cool ticket. I to did. I didn't have to pay for it. It's good. I'm not going to get this job, but I'm going to, it's a free trip. I was at the time associate director of the medical surgical intensive care unit at San Francisco General Hospital. And because it was around Christmas time, nobody wanted to trade rotations so I could go home for Christmas. Right. So I really, I had to do like double duty and two or three shifts in a row and beg people to let me go. Finally, I got it done. And when I, when I got on the plane, this was the days before TSA. Uh, so you could just like park your car and run and get on the plane. Nice. Literally. I, I, I have no, <laughs> you know, we no, have no idea what that is. Like that, that, right? like, oh, it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when you could like say goodbye to your, you could go to the gate and right. watch them get on the plane and watch the plane take off. I remember all that that you can't do now, but I don't remember just, yes. just walking onto a plane. Yes, I parked right in the, in the expensive parking spot, oh, right? Oh, and oh, I oh. just ran on, got on the plane and, and I was so amped up on caffeine because I had done two shifts in a row and, and so it was an overnight flight and I couldn't sleep. Uh, and I, I mean, and this, these are the days before you had screens and TVs and all. So everybody was like asleep on the plane. And I'm sitting there and I'm just wide awake. So I said, well, I might as well read the packet of information they sent about the job. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hadn't even cracked it open. It wasn't about that. You were it just was, going I was going to see free. Dad. Yeah. Yeah. And so I read it and I read it and I read it. I said, wow, this thing is amazing. I love this thing. And I just, so when I got there, I, you know, I did the interview. The, uh, it was a great, uh, it was a, gr a great uh, uh, interview in the sense that uh, we had it at Methodist Hospital. It was 8 o'clock in the morning. I had gotten off the flight. The flight was late coming into Indianapolis. I rented a car. Uh, it was like 70-something degrees in San Francisco when I left. It was zero degrees in Indianapolis. Oh, welcome back home. I got out, I opened the door, and I uh, I still was in my surgical greens. I hadn't changed clothes. And I was in this tiny little rental car, and I'm a pretty big guy. And so I had to change clothes in the parking lot, zero oh, degrees. No. I mean, I'm down in my skivvies looking around to see if there's anybody watching. The parking lot of the, the Right across the street from Methodist Hospital. Oh, okay, around okay, Capitol. Right, 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 I got you. And so the cold air clearly wakes me up, right? And because I'm falling asleep by this time, still had had no sleep, and I'm thinking, okay, well these guys, they're not going to mind, you know? They're they're doctors, they'll understand. They get and, it. Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, I thought they were, you know the two or three members of the executive committee were going to enter. And I walked in the conference room, and the entire committee, 19, 20 people, were there around the table, and I'm like five minutes late because it's taken me a while to get dressed. And I am thinking, oh, my gosh, what have I got myself into? And I literally do not remember one question that they asked me. I just did my interview, and I must have done okay. You must have uh, done okay. I must have done okay because they invited me. I went home 
to my dad, said hello, fell asleep for like 12 hours, got up and they called me that evening and said, would I come back for round two? And I said, okay, I'll do that. And my dad's like, you know, consoling me, son, that was a good try. I'm glad you did the interview. You know, we, we have to try these Way things. Way to put yourself <laughs> out there. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, they, hey, they just called me back, you know? I said, wow. He said, whoa, what's that all about? And so we did the second interview and then I went back to California and then they called me back uh, to meet the governor. Uh, and I walked into Governor Orr's office. Uh, and I'm, you know, I get, this time I'm wide awake, right? And, I'm good. and uh, Governor Orr's sitting there with a couple of his staff members. And it's the first time I've ever met a governor in my life. And I'm in my suit. I don't know. What do you say to a governor? You know, it's like, I, I, have you, uh, do I you know, know what to say to a governor? I don't when know. You're a governor. You just remember that that's how people feel. That's you know? right. You, I, you know. I will, I will yeah. do that. And, and you're 30 years old. I'm 30 years old. I'm saying, I'm talking to the governor of Indiana and I'm saying, governor, it's good to meet you. And and like five minutes into the interview, I just can't, I just can't contain myself anymore because I do not know that he's already briefed about who I am. I I didn't know that the staff actually briefed you before the (laughs) interviewee came in. And I said, governor, I I want to tell you something. I just want to make sure you understand that, uh, that I'm a Democrat and I work for Senator Ted Kennedy right now. And I just wanted to make sure that was on the sheet that you were looking at then, because I don't know what they've told you. And he kind of laughed at me and said, oh God, who's this guy thinking that, you know, <laughs> we're, we, we, we aren't uh, getting our, our, te- our team's not briefing me. He right. laughed at oh, me. Oh, that's new information Yeah, that's right. Oh, oh, I'm shocked. Yeah, you know? Oh, really? Uh, and the uh, governor looked at me and, and laughed and said, Dr. Myers, that does not bother me, but it may bother you. And I just <laughs> cracked up and I said, this is a cool guy. I said, and it really changed my perception. That was the beginning of a very good relationship. And it really, it, you know, because I, I, I admit that I had stereotypes. I, I thought, well, all Republicans are X and, and as a Democrat, you must be Y. And there, there you know, there shall be punching in the room and, and gnashing of teeth. And, you know, there shall be violence. And there's always going to have to be conflict. There's always right? going to be conflict. And right. that just is that absolutely not true. And it was very much not the case under the uh, Bob Orr administration. I mean, it was collaborative. I mean, in those days, Indiana politicians, most of them put their R's and D's to the side after the election was over and, and wanted to work for the benefit of Hoosiers. And, it's like uh, Mayor Richard Luger at the time as well, too. Well, lot, there have been there yeah. are many examples of Republicans and Democrats in, in the state in those days, uh, less so today, right. much less so today, but in those days, uh, and that's why we got the legislation passed. And I say we because it was a collaborative effort between the Republicans and the Senate, uh, the Indiana Senate, the Democrats in the Indiana House and the governor's office to get legislation passed that changed the way we thought about kids who had uh, serious chronic disease uh, in Indiana and, and how they should be managed with respect to school. That was the whole Ryan White story because Ryan White was a uh, 14-year-old boy, 13-year-old boy in Kokomo, Indiana, and the uh, school had... Parents were afraid. They found out that he was uh, HIV positive. The petition was written to kick him out of school. Uh, in those days, it was the local health officer who got to decide uh, whether or not uh, a kid with an illness could or couldn't go to school. And the, and the uh, local health officer uh, knew that there wasn't any rationale scientifically or clinically to keep Ryan out. And uh, we talked to him. I said, dude, why, why are you? I mean, literally, I'm on the phone with the guy. And I said, dude, why are you doing this? You know that there's no r- rationale for this. And he said, yeah, I know that. Uh, but the guy said, you know, many of the parents that are signing this petition are my patients or their, are their parents. And I don't want to lose business. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, it became very clear to me, wow, 
you know, this was not the way you're supposed to make public health decisions. You're supposed to make public health decisions based on the evidence and the science. And so when that, when that happened, uh, we started uh, our, an effort uh, statewide to uh, get the law changed. And over time, it did get changed. And that's when uh, it was clear that the state health commissioner, uh, with the best scientific evidence available, made the decision, the final decision, as to who got to go to school, not the local health officer who could be under the influence of a variety of forces locally and may not have access to all the relevant information. It was also a, a time when there was a lot of uh, violence uh, towards HIV positive people, including here in Indiana. And, and, uh, and you had just come from San Francisco, so you- When I became health commissioner, I had actually taken care of more HIV patients than anybody in, in the state at that time. And, and uh, I, I, I knew the discrimination issues that they were facing. And I mean, people were shooting guns in their Ryan's uh, home, Jeannie White, uh, uh, was uh, was uh, telling us uh, recently about uh, how she had to deal with that kind of concern and that kind of violence, and that's when they moved to uh, from Kokomo to outside of Kokomo to Cicero, Indiana. Uh, they moved at the end of the school year, so we had all summer to help the Hamblin Heights School District get uh, used to the fact that they were going to have Ryan as a student. Town halls and were met with the school board. Our team did a great job of getting the community ready, and then on the first day of school. Uh, which uh, which was uh, in August, uh, end of August, early September, uh, uh, Ryan uh, got out of the car uh, and the head of the student council came out and hugged him. Every camera in America, it seemed like, was there to witness that. Uh, the, the kids welcomed him with open arms. They were ready for him. He, there was no issue of hate or there was no, the, not the, the violence, none of that. It had just changed 180 degrees. And and Indiana's result became a model for HIV education. That's when, uh, that's when Ryan really got noticed because th that uh, those TV segments of, of that uh, uh, made him friends ultimately with uh, the likes of uh, Elton John, Sir Elton John, and Michael Jackson, and all the very stars. He got to meet President uh, Reagan. He he went on trips to uh, all over the world and. Got to go to concerts. Uh, Michael Jackson, I think, gave him a Mustang. I mean, I loved yeah. that car. Wow. Lots yeah. of things happened as a result of that. Uh, and then, and Ryan was a perfect ambassador because he was just this unassuming 14-year-old kid that said, I just want to go to school. And he knew that he was uh, being looked at as, a, as a, a leader, although that's not what he wanted. He just wanted to, to be a just normal kid. Just wanted to be a normal 14-year-old kid. kid to to, right? Ashley got a chance to, I think, go to one prom before. Uh, while he was there. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, he unfortunately had the disease before we had the therapy that we have today, and he died of his disease uh, back in 1990. And, you know, Ryan would be, what, 48 years old today if he were alive? And if he had been born a couple years later, he'd probably be alive because the, the therapy came out a few years after, after his death that uh, now allows uh, people with HIV to, to have a chronic disease as opposed to a lethal disease. So things have, have changed a great deal uh, since that time, and uh, things have moved in a, in a good direction, but we still have a long way to go. I think they've changed largely because of your efforts here uh, in Indiana. I think when you said that the, the president of the student council came out and gave him a hug in front of all, all of these cameras, I think that was probably in response to your leadership because, correct me if I'm wrong, but when this was at its the height of its fervor, you appeared with him on camera and with Ryan on camera a few times at least, and I think at one point you'd like tousled his hair. I did. And and that was uh, back then a moment of like, oh my gosh, he, right. you like know, you shouldn't be that touching that, away, that right? person, right. you right. know, and that's just a means by which, and I'm, I don't know whether you did it consciously or 
or just because you did it. Um, but it was such a moment of weight, a, a moment of a light bulb of education for people who didn't know this is not like a contagion that you're just going to get for being next to somebody or touching that. Yeah, it was like, how do you demonstrate that to the public uh, in a natural way was the thought that, that went through my head. And here I am, I'm a physician, I've got a shirt and tie on. I'm 30 something years old. He's a 14, 15 year old kid in a, in a, a regular old uh, polo shirt. And he's sitting beside me at a press conference uh, at a table. I'm standing up uh, and uh, I wanted America, I wanted Indiana to know that this is not leprosy. This is not uh, a contagious disease. And you know, it, a hug seemed unnatural. Uh, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with hugs, right. but I said, uh, uh, he's 14. You know, I just put my hand on his head and twirled his hair around and he laughed and uh, that was it. And and, and that gesture, I think, uh, sent a signal. Well, if the state health commissioner, who should have the best information in the state regarding this disease, is willing to touch somebody who we know to be HIV positive, then it can't be all bad. That's the, that's the, the what we wanted to uh, to communicate, to translate. Now, there were other HIV patients in the state as well that we were we were working with. There was a woman named Amy Sloan up in Lafayette who had gotten it from a blood transfusion. We, we had her uh, at the governor's mansion. Governor Orr let us do a press conference uh, on a Sunday in his home uh, uh, in order to show America, show the state of Indiana, that the governor of, of the state was willing to have somebody who was HIV positive uh, in, in the state's uh, governor's residence. Now, that doesn't seem very special today, but back in the mid, late 80s, that was a big deal. And so. We, we, we tried a, a variety of, 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 of techniques, a variety of, we took a variety of steps in order to help people understand that, that the, the fear that was, uh, that was uh, being spewed, the hate that was being spewed, that was, it was unnecessary, it was, it was wrong, and uh, we needed to treat uh, uh, the people who had this disease uh, with, with kindness, uh, uh, with, with uh, concern, uh, with humanity, and we needed to do the research necessary in order to find the, the treatments, if not the cure. It's a lot about education, right? That's kind of a theme that I'm seeing is um, even early in the in the 60s and 70s with the racial tension and everything, it's always been about educating others and educating folks about each other and about and about the issues rather than just going straight to, I don't know, like a natural reaction. It's more of Let's let's take a concerted effort. Let's think about this a little bit more and, and take that moment to step back. Yeah, it's interesting how quickly we respond sometimes when we're completely and totally ignorant. Mm -hmm. Like having a knee-jerk response right. while mm -hmm. you're enveloped in ignorance is a very easy thing to do. Or group think, right? Like, oh, yeah, And absolutely. peer pressuring, yeah. But, yeah, and it seems like the two of you seem to be people who want to educate uh, um, the public about other things that that might be challenging for them to necessarily accept. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm thankful for you for that uh, because I know that because you're willing to make yourselves uncomfortable to kind of stick up for people who are seen as different or dangerous or damaged or in some way, I think that's really, really helped out the rest of us. And there's just no way that you can know who you've helped out. But that's not why you do it. I know you just do it, and it's I think the right that's because right? it's the right thing, yeah. right thing to do. I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment and continue our conversation with Dr. Woody Myers and his amazing wife, Stacy. Yeah. 
Hello there, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. In our conversation with Dr. Woody Myers and his wife, Stacy, you'll hear how they're using their experiences in healthcare to drive success in their respective fields. They give you a look inside the hard work that it takes to start your own business and what drives them in their journey to political office. To learn more about how you can use Genesis to future-proof your smaller mid-sized business and drive marketing and CX convergence in healthcare, check out the resources below. And thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe, and stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment, where we will continue our conversation with the Myers. Um, Stacy, I'm really interested in your trajectory as someone who runs their own business. What are some of the challenges? Like, if you could say, these are the three things. If you're about to start your own business, you're the boss, you're going to run it. What three lessons or or things do you wish you would have known about being your own your own business? Uh, I think uh, one of the biggest challenges is people aren't going to just buy automatically because you have something that can help them. You have to educate them. Education is key. Um, this is a constant theme. It's a constant yeah. theme, yeah. You, people don't buy products. They buy because of you. They buy because of who you are. And so um, education is key. You have to um, change mindsets. And you can't want something more for someone than they want for themselves. Um, I've, this is a, a very common uh, occurrence is um, people that are in pain generally will talk about it. How many times do you run into someone and, um, you know, you say, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, you know, I, I'm sorry. I would have been here on time, but, you know, my back is killing me. I would have been here, but I couldn't get out of the house. And, you know, so that starts the conversation. You know, you offer them something and they say they'll think about it. And, you know, a month later, they're still talking about their pain. You remind them that you, you know, did you look at my website? Oh, I didn't get around to it. And then six months later, it's the same thing. Sometimes you have to learn to just bless and release those people. Bless and release. And I'm going to write that down. <laughs> so that should, that should be on a T-shirt. It's, it's, <laughs> it's been difficult when when you know you have something. I shouldn't say you know. You you know what some a product has done for you and you want that for someone else. But if they can't take that step for themselves to try it. You, you can't want it for them more than they want it for themselves. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Exactly. That sort of so that's that's a, that's one thing. So um, just the education aspect is huge. Uh, the second thing I would say, time. You have to invest the time in into personal development uh, for yourself and then professional development. That That's key, too. Those, those three things, I think, are um, the three major components. I would imagine just the time management that it takes is sort of mind-boggling to start your own business, you know, have a partner that you have to be invested in and have children that you have to be invested in and everything else that's going on in your life. Uh, when I think about what you must have gone through starting this, I, I start to get uh, anxiety sweats because I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, I can't even. And when I think I'm busy, all I have to remember is you. And I go, okay, I'm not that busy. 
you know, the things that you've been able to accomplish and succeed at are really remarkable. Yeah, time time management is def it, it is a challenge because I you know you want to throw yourself in a hundred and fifty percent and and there there is definitely a balancing act because I do have to remember I have to be I have to make time for us and you know and Woody's he's focusing time on. Um, the campaign, and I want to be there to help with the campaign, and then we have to find time to make for ourselves. Uh, so we have date night every week, or at least we try to have. You know, sometimes it doesn't happen, and then we might have two dates the next week. Um, <laughs> you always got to make up. For yeah, it. We, yeah, we try to make up for it. So time management is um, definitely another. Uh, I, I guess I should say there are four four factors there that um, are um, challenging, but yeah, there, there's there's um, a lot of uh, factors that come into play. So. It is a challenge. I want to go back to your uh, background in respiratory therapy, mm-hmm. yes. uh, dealing with patients. Yes. Um, what do you think is one of those main things that as a healthcare provider is super important when you're connecting with your patients and when you're providing care for your patients? Listening. Listening to their concerns, listening to their, not just listening to their ailments, but listening to um, and being attentive to the other aspects of their lives. Sometimes it's not just what their health ailments are, but what other uh, aspects of their lives are they experiencing that could be playing into their health concerns. Sometimes it's um, their living conditions. Sometimes it's their lack of income or it's their job situation or it's the lack of support they have at home. Sometimes it's an abusive situation. I, there's just so many other factors that come into play that they need support or guidance. Uh, I feel like when I was working in the hospital setting, I wore a lot of hats. I, I felt like I was a therapist, a social worker, and a lot of times people were so rushed and they didn't have time for the patients and they would just go in and do a treatment and then they were gone. People need someone who can show empathy and you know, people need love. They need compassion. Just that little bit goes such a long way. I can't tell you how many times people would just say thank you so much for listening. But to take it another step and to be able to come back and say, you know, I have a list for you of some additional resources. Here, here are some numbers for apartments that will work with you um, that that offer subsidies for rental assistance or just different resources that that could help them, they would be so grateful. And sometimes people just wouldn't take the time to, you know, go on the Internet and, you know, do a few searches that that can make the difference in someone's life. I think it's uh, sad how often people feel as if they're not listened to by their healthcare provider, even if that person might be making all the uh, the hallmarks of someone listening. They're nodding their heads and they're saying, mm-hmm. but then they just aren't taking any of that information into account. Right. Um, I've seen that happen with some of my own family as well, and I know it's super, super frustrating. So the fact that you are, uh, that you have a practice of listening, I think goes a long, long way. Thank you. Thank you. For that, really, 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 because I know uh, very well how much it means to a patient when they go in and they feel as if they've been heard and understood. Which sometimes well, especially in the healthcare industry, right? Because you're going in there not because you're super healthy and everything's going great. I mean, yeah, you might 
if you're doing your regular wellness check, but you're usually going into a hospital setting because there is something truly wrong with you and, and you have all this anxiety and all this fear and nervousness and just having somebody there that that really is listening and you like you said the empathy part I think goes a really long way in helping them feel comfortable and, and be open and honest about their health condition right well we have to remember that especially here in Indiana uh, there are huge populations of patients that don't have access to those kinds of uh, empathetic uh, resources uh, a lot of that depends upon whether or not you have some kind of a health insurance or health plan that allows you to get uh, access to the healthcare professional and uh, and whether you have geographic access as well as economic access. And there are still a lot of parts of our state that, that have huge challenges with geographic access, uh, can't get appointments, uh, can't get appointments with the right kind of uh, provider, don't have transportation to see if you do get an appointment. I have complications that if you get an appointment, you have to get childcare, you have to get some sort of uh, help to take care of the daily responsibilities. You have to take time off from work. If you take too much time off from work, you can't keep your job and on and on and on and on. So it's a it's a big challenge. And then if you've got uh, Medicaid, only certain providers will see you. If you've got Medicare, sometimes only certain providers will see you. Even if you've got good quote unquote health insurance today, uh, uh, unless uh, you have uh, someone who's in the right network or unless you've got someone who's on your on the list of uh, folks that have appointment availability, you can't see them. And it's just a hugely complicated set of problems that we have in healthcare uh, in not uh, just a, in America, but in Indiana. And here in our state, we have a especially difficult problem with cost. People don't understand, but Indiana is one of the highest cost states for hospital and physician services the nationwide. And it's a, it's a mystery to many of us as to how did we get so high so fast, but we are at the top of that list. And, and I say all that because I know those are challenges, <laughs> but, but at the same time, I want to also be positive in the sense that, that uh, we can do so much more for patients today than we've ever been able to do before. When, mm -hmm. when, I, uh, when I went to medical school uh, in the Paleolithic era, I believe it was, <laughs> before dinosaurs, before dinosaurs, before were, dinosaurs. were able to yeah, walk yeah. the earth, uh, uh, we, we, I uh, was an intern in the uh, critical care unit at uh, Stanford Hospital, uh, and uh, patients would come in with heart attacks, and basically we would treat their pain, uh, we would give them some rudimentary medication to help the pump function of the heart, uh, and then we'd watch them die uh, because we didn't have good interventions in those days. We didn't have angioplasty. We didn't have uh, uh, the the factor that's used to to dis disassemble clots uh, that we use today. We didn't have any of the means that we have the, with stents uh, and the procedures that we use. The coronary artery bypass grafting procedure was was in its early stages. Lots of complications compared to uh, today. So. Uh, looking back at that and looking at what we're, we're able to do today, uh, the same patients that would die in uh, our CCU in those days walk out of the hospital today in 24, 48 hours just fine uh, with a new diet and hopefully on the medication that's going to keep them healthy. So the advances in medicine have been unbelievable if you're in that lucky population that's able to get access and to afford them. That's the, tr the trick. Uh, I, I tell the story a lot that uh, if you are walking across uh, the uh, the bridge out here on, on 79th Street, let's say, uh, across 465, and you have a stroke. Uh, someone will see you. Someone will call an ambulance. Uh, some, the ambulance will be there in five minutes, typically, pick you up, take you to St. Vincent Stroke Center. 
Uh, they will put you in an, in an MRI, usually uh, find out where the stroke is, what kind it is, and then do the appropriate intervention for that stroke. Uh, and that's because there are laws today that, that, that say that the city, county, state are responsible for, for that kind of transportation trauma system care and get you to the facility. The facility can't not treat you because you don't have the appropriate insurance. It's called the EMTALA law. So for emergency care under certain circumstances, uh, there's, there's a good system for many patients, not everybody. But if you walk across 79th Street with a bad hypertension, headache, uh, because uh, you don't have the right medication, uh, and you need two or three bucks worth of medication a day and you don't have it, uh, and there, there's no ambulance that comes to fix you up, it may, may not be possible for you to get an appointment with a physician who will see you because you may not have the right insurance. Uh, it'll take that stroke, unfortunately, to get you the care you need often after the fact when the damage has been done. And it's too late. If you think about isn't yeah. that, isn't that crazy? crazy? Isn't that insane? insane? Yeah. Isn't that nuts? Uh, and it's the same issue on the other end of life at the beginning where we have a high uh, infant mortality rate in Indiana, 7.9. Uh, we're, we're almost up to Mississippi levels, and I, and I don't denigrate Mississippi. They've got huge trouble, but they're at 8.4. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the good states are in the fives and the high fives and low sixes in terms of 1,000 uh, deaths per uh, live infants uh, in the first uh, year or two of life. And so... We've got huge problems in infant mortality in Indiana. We've got huge problems in maternal mortality, women dying in childbirth in 2019. Can you believe it? And I guess that's one of the reasons that I decided to throw my hat in the ring uh, for political office because uh, you know, I had a choice. I could continue yelling at the TV and writing op-eds and getting upset about it or, or, or figure out a way to do something. And I decided to, to figure out a way to do something. Hello again, Josh Reed here, and as I mentioned before, you are all in luck. This is a two-part episode series featuring Dr. Woody Myers and his wife, Stacy. So stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment, where we'll discuss with the Myers advancements in healthcare technology, tips and tricks on how to run a successful startup, and we'll give you an inside look into the Myers' journey to political office. And we might even play a game or two. But you'll have to be on the lookout for the next episode, and thanks again for taking a moment with us.